And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me on the phone line today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Kevin, it's great to have you here today. Good to be with you again, Dan. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the subjects that we want to talk about today is the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, That seems like a really difficult book, to me anyway. As you flip through the pages and look at it, uh, sometimes it's kind of uh, almost discouraging, you know, all the vanity and all of that. So let's talk about that today, Uh, Kevin, and could you get us started as we approach this whole book of Ecclesiastes? Sure, you're right, Dan. The book uh, is somewhat imposing and somewhat difficult, and it's often avoided. You know, a lot of preachers don't preach on it. Um, but the literature on it is out there, and there's a, there's a lot of commentaries that you can now get on it which are good. I remember years ago when I went to preach on it, asking many uh, seasoned pastors about it before I took on the task, and uh, the vast majority of them had not preached on it. Um, they admitted it was a difficult book to preach, and it presented all sorts of problems challenges to the preacher, but the few who had preached on it said it was really extraordinary that, in fact, it had been one of the most uh, encouraging and edifying and enjoyable series for their flocks. And uh, I think, contrary to first appearances, uh, a couple things are important. The book is ultimately a book about joy. It's a book about uh, fearing God and, and keeping His commandments, and it's a book which I think many people find refreshing for its brutal honesty, for its realism, for the fact that it it weighs in on the world in a way, uh, not that is absent in other books, but is not as direct and blunt and forthright and pervasive as it is um, in Ecclesiastes. I think one of the ways to get at this, Dan, is to to think of the phrase about under the sun. I saw everything under the sun and it was vanity or meaningless. And uh, the the, uh, the preacher, the writer of the book, uses this term under the sun something like 29, 30 times in the book. And uh, it's often asserted that he means something like life apart from God or life aside from Jesus Christ. And thus Ecclesiastes is really about how life is vanity apart from God. But I don't think that's correct. I don't think Ecclesiastes is a form of apologetics or pre-evangelism. And and there's a lot of reasons for that, but we could summarize them, because I think think this is important. Is the book some kind of uh, book about the vanity of life apart from God, or is it doing something else? And the book is the divinely given, inspired, kingly wisdom, right? Solomon is the one who tells the tale, and chapter 12 says that he studied and he arranged Proverbs and he taught people knowledge. He wrote uprightly the words of truth, that his words are goads, nails, firmly driven by one shepherd. So the book purports to be divinely inspired wisdom for the covenant community. In fact, there's a whole section in chapter 5 about going to the house of God to listen for word and for sacrifice and for prayer and for vows. I mean, this is not the kind of stuff you put in the middle of a book that's a, an, a, to an apologetic purpose. And so, you know, throughout the book, Solomon, the preacher, says 
he sought to search everything out by divinely given wisdom. Even in chapter 2, where he's uh, flirting perhaps a little too recklessly with pleasure, he says, my wisdom remained with me. And so when we think of the book and we think of it surveying life under the sun, it doesn't mean from the perspective of unbelief. It means from the perspective of man, to be sure. You know, man in the totality of his experience. The book does speak of the world in its own rights, the fallen world we experience, but it doesn't refer to the world or to man without God. The business that man is given to do under the sun, Solomon says, is the business God has given to man. And so this makes a big difference in the way one approaches the book. Is life under the sun life for the unbeliever, or is it just life, period? And I would say it's life, period. Then the book becomes of great interest, I think, to to all of us. Yeah. You know, before we open the mic, I told you uh, this morning, Kevin, I sat down, I just did a fresh read through the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, one of the feelings I get is that uh, there's a certain realism that comes forward, where this guy is just, he's, he's realistically... Uh, assessing life. Uh, do you get that feeling also? Oh, yes, that's very, very true. In fact, I know of a story of a, a woman in her 40s who was a, not a, a Christian who uh, converted upon the reading of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, that, this is the surprise joy in the book. When people encounter the book, they realize it says things about life that they see all the time, yes. that they experience but somehow they feel that maybe they shouldn't give voice to it or acknowledge it. And so there's a kind of liberation in that. Uh, so, yes, I think the book is, is talking about the quality of life in a way. Um, it's not that you can't get this sort of thing from Proverbs or from, or from the Prophets or the Gospels or other places, but that Ecclesiastes zones right in on it. And it's, it looks at the world, and it says, all is meaningless, all is vanity. Now, it can't mean meaningless. Um, Solomon doesn't think the world is utterly meaningless. If he thought that, then his book would be utterly meaningless. <laughs> the, 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 word, the word there, the Hebrew word is hebel, and hebel, and it's usually translated vanity, something like vanity. It's really, really crucial. He uses it many, many times throughout the book. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at, I mean, obviously the word has a range of meaning, but the best root meaning for it is, I think, vapor. It's his way of saying everything is transient, vanishing vapor. And that's true of everything we experience, see, and touch in life. Uh, he uses this phrase in conjunction with the idea of shepherding the wind. And so he's saying something like this. He's saying everything under the sun is ungraspable. It's elusive. It's enigmatic. It's out of your control. You can't manage it. It's vapor, a mist, a puff of smoke. And... Uh, you know, if you don't realize this, the preacher says, then you, and you attempt to grasp and control and manipulate life, that's like shepherding the wind. Yes. And so uh, it's very clear that he uh, sees life this way. And again, it's not simply life apart from God. Uh, the things that Solomon sees as vapor, injustice and oppression, the fact that men die like beasts, these things happen the fact that nature churns on, the sun rotates around, and the wind spins around, and, and, you know, one generation comes and then another generation goes, and death is the final event that levels all of us. This stuff is true even for Christians. And so the, the, the observations he makes uh, indicate that whatever he means by vapor, he means 
is for all of us. In fact, in the New Testament, James will say that your life is a vapor. Right. And, and Paul can say that the whole creation groans and is subject to futility or vanity. And Paul uses the Greek word, which is the, the equivalent of the Hebrew word for vanity that the preacher uses. So the vaporizing vanity of life remains, and it applies to believers. And, and this means, of course, that true wisdom then, true, being a truly discerning person is going to require some complexity. I often put it this way, Dan, you need, we need the relatively straightforward precept-by-precept wisdom of Proverbs, but we also need the sort of complex, observational, often exasperating wisdom of Ecclesiastes, uh, because they're both getting at stuff which is, of course, true of God and the world he governs, but Ecclesiastes gets at some stuff which we tend to ignore. Yeah, even the author, uh, he admits in the beginning, Kevin, he says... Uh, when he set his heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that's done under heaven, he calls it a grievous task. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so it's hard work, I guess. Well, yes, and the grievous business, life is a grievous business, but it's a grievous business that God has given to the sons of men, the sons of Adam, to do, and we're all working now by the sweat of our brow. It's a big part of Ecclesiastes, uh, the sobriety and the wisdom it gives to us to remind us that the curse and the fall are not just a little nuisance tax uh, yes. on an otherwise pleasant existence. Yes, now what, what about, here's a question, um, suppose a person just jumped in um, to chapter 2, they read just a few verses that's talking about the vanity of hard labor, um, previous, uh, previously the vanity of great accomplishments, all of that, and they closed the Bible and they just walked away and said, well, I guess God just doesn't want me to work hard. That that would be wrong, I assume. Right, yes. Uh, yeah. that, that brings up a good question. It, the, the, you could argue that the driving question in the whole book is in chapter 1, it's in verse 3, and, and where the preacher says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Right. Um, and that, that word for gain is, 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 is a business term. And so you have a book that's very, very concerned for man's labor, Lots of labor and work-related items come up in the book. And the book is driven by this question, okay, you have to toil and work under the sun, but what do you gain by it? And by that, the preacher means, what leverage do you have? What, what can you really control? Um, and it's not that your work is meaningless, because he documents his own building projects in Chapter 2, you know, the gardens he built yes. and, and his, own, his own work. Um, but he wants you to recognize the vaporizing quality of it, um, you know, you're brought into life by forces that are not under your control, and, you know, the universe whirls on, he says, and often the preacher will say labor is, is lost or it's squandered, or, and this is a big part of the book, there's this inheritance problem. You hand it on to others, and who knows what they're going to do with it after you die. In the end, what leverage do you have? Your leverage over your work goes to almost zero at the time of your death. You could You could maybe get some leverage by having a will and having successors and doing the right legal paperwork and handing your work on. But what about their successors? Your leverage goes from almost zero to virtually zero in a generation or two. And the preacher picks this up later in the book. And so these are things we tend not to think. We forget the fact that every Christian college and university has been subverted from the gospel, every last one of them. Yeah. Um, Christian ministries don't have long track records. So it's not that we don't, we don't and we shouldn't labor. 
It's that we should not make an idol out of work. We should recognize that work is is uh, now uh, taxed, if you will, by the effects of the curse. But we should also recognize that we don't have the kind of leverage that we think we have over our work. And that's kind of, uh, I think, the preacher's point on gain. You know, what gain do you have over the fact that, you know, you don't determine your birth, your death, your gifts, your aptitude, uh, the frustrations of your work, the unexpected things. Again, he's, he's trying to say, look, I'm looking at everything here, and when you start to look at everything against the horizon of death, you have to realize that there's a fleeting, unmanageable character to life. And this, he says, is just the way things are. Yeah, um, another thing that stood out to me, Kevin, was... Um in my Bible, chapter 3, there's a subheading which is not necessarily inspired. It says, God predetermines the events of life. Mm-hmm. And I and I thought about that, and that's the section which actually was put to a pop song, a time to be born, a time to die, yeah. etc. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? Um, this really would be ultimately meaningless if it wasn't for the sovereignty of God. Yes. Chapter 3 is, a, is about the fact that the world or the universe is timed, ordered, but they're God's times. I mean, there's nothing in Chapter 3 that says, um, there's no uh, prescription, if you will. It doesn't tell us how to behave or what to do. It just says the times are thrust upon us, a time to be born, a time to, time to die. Nobody chooses a time to mourn. It's so true. Right? Nobody can chaperone the time to laugh. You have to discern, is it a time to build or is it a time to tear down? And yes, the point is that God, God makes everything beautiful in His time. Mm. He sets eternity in our hearts, and yet we can't see the beginning from the end. This is part of the frustration of life that Ecclesiastes experiences. We want to know things. We want to pry into the sovereign ordering of the times. I mean, who doesn't want to understand the narrative of the works of God in their own life? But one of the things Ecclesiastes does for us here is it chastens us. It says, look, the times are not your times. You, you're not in the FAA control tower for the flight of your life. God is in the control tower. You're in the, in the plane. You strap your seatbelt on. You get in the seat. You're not flying the plane. You don't know all the things that are going on even in your own life. And, and so Solomon points this out a lot. A man can't figure out what's to come after him. He can't know the whole thing. And that's part of, that's part of the roiling, turbulent uh, glory that is Ecclesiastes. Solomon is in some senses trying to figure everything out by divinely giving wisdom and realizing the creaturely um, finite limitations. And part of what this means is that we can hand these things over to the Lord, who is the sovereign one who orders the times. But practically what that means is that Solomon, I think, in Ecclesiastes, would counsel us to stop trying to figure out all the details of God's providential workings, even in our own lives, because Mm. he would remind us, well, you don't know nearly as much as you think you know about what's happening. You're just not in a position to know it. And so, um, you're right, chapter 3 is, again, an important chapter. And all those times in chapter 3 a time for war, a time for peace, they fall upon believers and unbelievers alike. To go back to my original point, this is a book of wisdom uh, for the covenant community. Mm, Yeah, and um, there was a little section that resonated with my heart. I'm troubled when I see um, um, 
where justice does not prevail, when righteous justice does not prevail, for example. And and verse 16 of chapter 3, I really related to it. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And and so this, this guy, he sees things that are a mess in society, and it, and it troubles his soul, as, yes. it, as it does mine. Yes, he doesn't think things are going well. Y- yeah. Just because they might be going well for him. They're going quite well for Solomon. I mean, Solomon's life was swimming for at least a large part of it. Uh, but it, it, it bothers the preacher here that uh, there's injustice and oppression. And again, this is another thing that Ecclesiastes does for us. It says, look, I know you don't like to look at this stuff or focus on it, and it may not even be affecting you personally, but the world is full of injustice and wickedness and corrupt officials and corruption in the court and corrupt leaders, and where there should be righteousness, there's absolute wickedness. The world is full of injustice, and this is in some sense uh, something of a challenge to the idea that God is ordering the times. In fact, this is why um, the passage you just cited, Dan, chapter 3, verse 16, about injustice and wickedness and oppression, comes right after the poem about there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, etc. After the preacher says, you know, God imposes times on men, he then says, so this is a timed world, but we see this wickedness. And he asserts that, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked where there is a time for every matter and every work, which means the injustice and oppression of this world mean there is also a time, a coming time, for judgment before the throne of God. Uh, there, you either have a meaningless universe where justice is never going to be done, or you have a universe where God will ultimately raise the dead, vindicate his people, and judge the wicked. Yes. But, but notice, uh, the preacher doesn't see justice, at least not a lot. Yeah. He... Uh, he has to affirm that by faith, what he sees with his eyes. And Ecclesiastes is doing this to some extent. It's an empirical book. It says, look, I just, I'm just telling you what I see. And what I see is injustice, deceit, corruption, graft, and oppression. Yeah, and I guess the reason these things trouble him is, is like you said before, he has put eternity in our hearts. Yes. Uh, we're, we're, we're made in the image of God, and so we have this, this sense of, of right and wrong, of course, that's informed by the law of God, and therefore it would trouble us even more when we see injustice. Um, we have, um, I don't know, seven minutes left, Kevin, as as we work through this book really quickly here on this episode of A Plain Answer. I, I, sh- I should have mentioned in the beginning, you have written a book. It's entitled Shepherding the Wind, Sermons on Ecclesiastes. So if our listeners want to pursue this subject further, I'm sure they could go to Amazon and look up that book. Thanks, Now, um, one verse that's helped me in my personal life comes from chapter 7. I I may be jumping too far ahead, Kevin, and it's verse 2, where it talks about it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, and it sounds very very uh, sad and depressing, but it isn't, um, because it says, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Can you talk to us a little bit about death, dying, and us that are living, observing, and going through the whole process? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent verse to put your finger on, Dan. I think this is one of the preacher's great passions in the book, is the reality of death. And while everyone thinks they know this, 
Um, we are really good at suppressing it and avoiding it. And so the preacher looks at life and, and really think about this. What is the fundamental feature about human existence? I think it's simply that we all die. I mean, he does this in chapter one, too. He almost takes an outsider's role and says, well, w- what is this whole whirling thing, this ball and hanging out there in blue space? It's, it's a global cemetery plot. Yes. I mean, basically, yes, we do a lot of stuff. We buzz back and forth. We have kids. We do what we can. Then we fall into graves by the, by the millions, all of us. And, so, and, and, and the falling into graves seems to be random. Smart people go young and wicked people go old, wise people and fools, dogs and animals. And he's obsessed with this question. He really is. Um, not, uh, personally, I don't think in, in an overly uh, morbid way. I, it just seems morbid to most of us who are not willing to face up to the fact that death is the most fundamental, basic feature of existence on the planet oh, yes. where, where we are under the curse of God. And so it cannot be avoided. So he says in, in, in chapter 7, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You know, if a baby's born and you have a celebration, it's wonderful. It's a delightful thing. You should have it. But not a lot of wisdom is going to be imparted. But when you go to the funeral home of a loved one, um, you have an opportunity to get in touch with the profound wisdom of the way the bent and crooked and twisted and vain world simply is. Uh, you, you can contemplate the true nature of things. This is where everyone is going. At the fu- everyone gets to be the guy in the box at the funeral home. You know, in, in Rome, there's a famous ancient church called the Church of the Bones, and you walk into the, the, the narthex of this church, and they have all these bones of dead monks stacked up to the wall. It's very macabre. And when you visit this church and you see this room full of bones, at the top of it there's a sign that says, where you are, we once were. <laughs> where we are, you shall soon be. Oh, my. And, and so Solomon is basically trying to, to point this to us. Now, I know we only have a few minutes, so Dan, let me kind of point out, though, that he does think at the end this means we can have joy and delight. Once we realize we have to loosen up our grip on life, we have to open up our hearts and our hands to be receptive people. And in many ways, that's what Ecclesiastes is about. Once you recognize that everything is transient, fleeting, vapor, your, your, your wife, your spouse, your kids, your job, they're all gonna, your, your house, your very being, your existence, all of these things are fleeing away from us as you and I speak right now. So what do you do? You have to hold life lightly. You have to receive things with open hands, with receptivity. And Solomon says if you do that, then you can have joy and delight in your labor, in your spouse, in, your, in, in the toil that you're given to do under the sun. But if you try to leverage it, it's going to destroy you, right? And that's what we find with food or drink or human sexuality. These things can be, if they're received open-handedly and then, they, then we let them go, they can be a gift. But if we try to leverage and squeeze and gain out of them, then these things become destructive. And so that's a big part of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. It's to face up to the fact that you can't leverage, chaperone, and gain things, that you're not in the FAA control tower of your life. So you need to loosen up your grip on life and on other people and, and receive things from the hand of God, and then uh, God gives you joy and enjoyment in the basic simple things in which life in its vast majority of moments consists, food, labor, family. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, we're just about to the end. Uh, Kevin, maybe one more thought here is... Um, 
The last chapter, um, of course, the last verse has, has something I'm sure you want to conclude with, but the last chapter has almost this coded language to describe growing old and some of the things we experience. Can you talk to that just for a moment? Oh, sure. The last chapter is a wonderful poem about, um, if you will, it depicts growing old as a sort of a decrepit house uh, in many ways. And uh, it is a charge to enjoy the light and the sweetness and the good things of life with a sober realization that your ability to enjoy will diminish as every second day, month, and year goes by. So this is part of the, the sober, liberating wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Because he, he starts that chapter with, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Because days are going to come when, you know, you're not going to be able to, to take a walk or do the kinds of wondrous things you can do now. It, it doesn't mean that old people uh, can't have joy. It just means it's going to get harder. Sure. Right? It, it, it gets harder, he says, because everything is, in fact, vanity, and it ends up in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth, the Spirit returns to God who gave him. And so that's a wonderful poem uh, there of, of the aging process and God presiding over it. It's a sad poem in many ways, but it's meant to give us a vision of how life ends. It's very closely connected to his obsession with death. Um, and so what he de- with the way he ends the book is he says, you know, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter. There's a sense in which the book has been driven by what we would call empirical concerns, meaning what I see, what I experience. Because that's real. I mean, what we see and what we experience must be accounted for. And at the end, the preacher reminds us, but we still, at the end of the day, we cannot live simply by will by what our eyes see, or even by what our experience tells us. We can't deny it. We can't escape it. We must assess it right. But ultimately, we are dependent on revelation. We are dependent on the fear of God and the commandments of God revealed in Scripture and the judgment which God has passed on Jesus Christ in our behalf and which he will manifest at the last day. Well, that's a beautiful conclusion. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Today we've been talking about the book of Ecclesiastes, My guest is Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. And Kevin, if our listeners have a question for you, how best should they get a hold of you? It'd probably be best to funnel the questions through Redeemer, Dan. Yes, so that email address is ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. And Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule today and joining our listeners. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me. And a quick reminder, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.